Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 63 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. You're joined by your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for another Q&A today. However, before we get stuck into the questions, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please take a screenshot and repost it on your Instagram stories, tagging myself, Tierra, and the Bodybuilding Dietitians. Also, if you are interested in our coaching services or finding more out about that, then please head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com. And you can also find that link in the show notes or our Instagram bios as well. And if you are interested in seeing us in video format, we also have a YouTube channel as well. Awesome. All right. So let's get stuck right into this Q&A. So Jack, what's the first question? So the first one is quite interesting. The question asker is inquiring about standing desks and whether they burn more calories than sitting. So this is a really interesting question and an interesting topic. And coincidentally, you know, the Stronger by Science team, uh, Greg and Eric over on their podcast, they actually just answered a question very similar to this. So I'm kind of just going to give a recap of what they talked about on their most recent podcast episode. But essentially, uh, when it comes to seated versus standing, right, at a desk. So there was a study done back in 2017, and they had three different protocols, right? So they had people sitting at a desk for just one hour doing their work, and they measured how many calories they were burning during that hour. Then in the second protocol, they had the same people sit at their desk for half an hour and then stand at their desk for half an hour, and they measured how many calories they burnt during that hour. And then in the third protocol, they had these subjects standing at their desk doing their work for a full hour. And essentially, you know, sitting at the desk for an hour straight, that was pretty much baseline, right? What they found is that if you were to sit at your desk for half an hour and then stand at the desk for half an hour, you will burn a total of five calories more per hour. However, if you were to stand at the desk for a full hour, you will burn in an additional eight calories more per hour. So it's not necessarily significant, you know, like it's not as if you are going to burn hundreds of calories more if you decide to stand at your desk compared to sit at your desk during the day. Yeah, based off that information, it definitely doesn't sound significant at all. And I won't be getting a standing desk to burn more calories, that's for sure. However, I have actually used a standing desk in the past, and that was when I had my back injury, and it was just very uncomfortable for me to sit down for long periods, especially when I was studying. And I think a lot of a lot of the preface of using a standing desk isn't to burn more calories. It's also about the postural aspect, and if you're sitting down a lot all day, it can impact your hips and your lower back and yeah I guess that's more a question of a physiotherapist to answer though yeah I think that's a really important point to make that you know the main reason why you get a standing desk shouldn't necessarily be to burn more calories because if you were you know working a nine to five job you know eight hours what's that going to be right that's going to be an additional like 64 calories across the day if you stand for those eight hours <laughs> right or like even if you sit for half an hour and then stand for half an hour and you did that for eight hours during the day what that's an additional 40 calories so 
that is tiny, you know? When you put that into the perspective of how much food that is, right? That's like, what? Like a teaspoon of oil? Like nothing. Or perhaps something like six nuts? Like it's very, very minuscule. So I don't think that should be the driving factor behind why you do choose to have a standing desk versus a sitting desk. And I think that any health benefits associated with having a standing desk versus a sitting desk aren't solely down to the total amount of energy that you're using, but just like Jack said, you know, it's from a postural component. And there certainly is literature to indicate that standing is certainly more preferential for extending, you know, your lifespan and predicting positive health outcomes compared to spending more time during the day being sedentary. So sitting down, lying down. So standing is certainly healthier from that perspective. However, I wouldn't necessarily do it just to burn a few extra calories. If you wanna focus on burning more energy throughout the day, you know, but you still wanna sit at your desk, I would recommend, you know, breaking up your day by going for little walks, you know? So make sure that every half an hour or every hour, right, you go for a tiny walk, maybe around your office floor or something like that, or you get up to go get a glass of water or you go pee or you do something. I think that's going to be a lot more beneficial if you actually involve movement rather than just standing. And I can certainly speak from experience that you know, being on your feet for a long time during the day, you know, it can be quite uncomfortable. Like I have actually experienced, you know, a lot of swelling in my lower extremities and my feet get very, very sore when I'm always on my feet during the day. So especially, you know, working as a waitress for years and running around, you know, the restaurant floor for like five hours at a time, or even working at the gym, you know, on the floor, walking around, you know, being a PT all day or standing at the reception desk, like your feet just get swollen and you go home at night and you just feel puffy and tired and you're just like, oh my God, the one thing I need right now is a foot massage. Like Jack, have you ever experienced that too? Yeah, I definitely have. When I used to work at Optus, I did eight to 10 hour shifts. And yeah, by the end of the day, like, I, all I wanted to do was sit down. Yeah, I know. Being on your feet can be freaking rough. I even remember in uni, you know, like those long three-hour pracs in the lab and, you know, you're on your feet the whole time and then you've got to go train legs afterwards. Just like, yeah, it can be rough. I don't, I don't like having swollen feet. I'm definitely a much bigger advocate of just going for little walks throughout the day. Mm, yeah, some people, I guess, don't have a choice if they have a active job. Yeah, it can be tough. All right, so moving on to this next question, which is a pretty interesting one. So it says, should I track fish oil intake in my fitness pal? As in, I don't have much fat for the day in terms of macros, and I'd rather get it from a food source that I enjoy. So I think I can speak for both of us in saying that we would recommend tracking the fish oil. And the main reason is that it is an energy source. It does contain energy. It will contribute to your fat macronutrient intake for the day. And just deciding not to track it won't really change the fact that it has energy and it will contribute to you losing or gaining weight, even though like depending on how much, how many fish oils you take, but it could be anywhere from like one to five grams of fat or even more than that. 
yeah, for example, I take fish oils, I take three and they're two or three grams each. So that's quite a lot of fat. Obviously yours might be different, but that can definitely add up over time, especially if you take um, one to three every single day for the whole of prep. Just think how many grams of fat that is. So if you're not tracking that, it will add up over time. And I made the argument to Tierra just off microphone, not off camera, that <laughs> being if you be consistent with it and take it every day and don't track it, then it doesn't really matter. But Tierra has a different side of the story, I guess. Yes. Oh, now you guys know that we are having discussions off air. <laughs> No, but from my point of view, you know, if you're in prep or if you're actually going to the effort to track your calories, if you want the most accurate data, you know, whatever you're putting into your body, track it. And it doesn't matter necessarily what type of food it is. You can't justify it as like, oh, it's a fish oil, you know, it's healthier technically than other oils. So it doesn't necessarily count, you know? If it's fish oil, it's still contributing to your total fat intake. Per gram, it still has the same amount of calories as if you were tracking olive oil or coconut oil or some other type of oil, right? So if you truly want the most accurate data, that needs to contribute to your total fat intake. And if you know that you know, you're know you consuming an extra three or five grams of fat from fish oil per day, but you're still maintaining your weight, right? Then why not just add an extra five grams onto your total daily fat targets and just account for the fish oil? So I'm just under that's the- That's what I would say, yeah. That's yeah. A, I think that's a better option. Like if you are having five grams worth of fish oil, just start tracking them and then add on an extra five grams to your daily macros for fat because you've been having the fish oils anyway and not tracking them. So kind of just makes sense to add, give yourself an extra few grams of fat for the day. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, I think that's, we've solved it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've gotten <laughs> to the bottom of this. <laughs> but yeah, you know, anything you're putting into your body, just track it. And, you know, you ask the question of, do I have to track it because I would rather get my fish oils from a food source that I enjoy. So the reason why fish oils are so awesome in terms of health benefits is because they provide omega-3 fatty acids, which are an essential fatty acid. We need omega-3s in our diet in order to thrive. However, you don't have to just consume fish oils in order to get those omega-3s. So if you wanted a food source of omega-3s, you know, go for a fatty fish source. Go for something like sardines or herring and kippers and salmon. Or, you know, if you follow a plant-based diet, consume more chia seeds, more flax meal, more walnuts. So you certainly can get omega-3s through food sources and enjoy food at the same time. Yeah, you certainly can. And especially in prep, it's so important to ensure that you're obtaining all the essential nutrients such as essential fatty acids, the water soluble vitamins, fat soluble, etc. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and if it is coming down to whether or not you want to consume your omega threes through a fish oil capsule or through the actual food, you know, I would be a bigger advocate of get it from real food, get it from something like sardines or salmon, because by consuming that, you're not only going to get the fish oils, but you're also going to get the other wonderful nutrients in those foods too, you know, some more protein. If you're having sardines, you're going to get a little bit more calcium, more zinc, all of these other things. So it certainly would be more nutritious overall to go to the actual food source, but I can totally respect that some people, 
you know, sardines just don't really tickle their fancy, so they might rather just pop an odorless fish oil. Mm. Yeah, that's what I do, mainly because nowadays it's very hard to know how much omega-3 is in a certain product. And the same goes for a lot of other micronutrients as well, such as tomatoes, for example, are very high in something called lycopene. And I remember there was a study done on tomato puree from quite a reputable food company, and they claimed that yes, there's a certain amount of lycopene in our tomato puree. Then they, they tried to find the, the exact quantity in it. A third party tried to, and there was zero. So like, and like, it's the same. I do think it's the same for omega-3 as well, especially for the farmed fish as we know. So it's kind of like hit and miss in my opinion, unless it's like the non-farmed sardines or non-farmed salmon, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Because from the diet that they're feeding those farmed fish, you know, they're feeding them an unnatural diet. They're feeding fish a diet full of corn and a fish in the wild isn't surviving off corn, all right? So it really comes down to, you know, you are what you eat and human beings and other organisms are the exact same. So if you feed a farmed fish a diet full of corn rather than a diet full of algae, it's actually going to have a higher percentage of omega-6 to omega-3s. So that is certainly something to keep in mind as well. Cool, so moving on to the next question. This one's by Nathan and he asks, Water retention when in a large deficit, will it subside when you know everything is controlled? So I almost feel like this question sings to me right now because we are recording this today on the 19th of February. And right now I'm actually 10 days out from my first competition of the season with the IFBB. And I'm actually experiencing this myself right now. You know, I'm in quite a large caloric deficit five days of the week, you know, I'm only on 150 grams of carbs, 35 grams of fat, and 140 grams of protein. And although I know that certainly has me in an energy deficit, this last week, despite hitting my macros to a T, you know, expending a decent amount of energy, you know, getting good quality sleep, I certainly have noticed that my body weight is actually starting to spike and I'm actually just randomly retaining a bit more fluid and uh, I'm certain that, you know, a lot of competitors and a lot of people who undergo prolonged diets can relate to this. And it's actually quite interesting because Jackson Pios just touched on this topic on the most recent Flex Success podcast where he was interviewed. And he was talking about how in the Minnesota starvation study, right, they had a whole number of participants and they put them through this severe, you know, caloric restriction, right? Because they wanted to see what would happen to them. And they were taking all of these different biomarkers, you know, in their blood. And what most people think and predict is that, oh, it all comes down to cortisol, right? When you are in a severe caloric deficit, you know, you're highly stressed, cortisol spikes, and that makes you retain fluid. But Interestingly enough, there's actually not a large body of literature to support the cortisol theory. And it actually turns out that even when you are dieting, cortisol isn't actually that elevated. It's really not that different to just baseline levels. 
But what they did notice in the Minnesota starvation study is that these participants going, you know, under severe caloric restriction for a prolonged period of time, they did experience this cell swelling and edema. And they actually have photos, you know, of their extremities and they are just very swollen and watery, like their feet and their calves and their legs. They're just retaining a lot of water. imbalance in electrolytes. Yeah, absolutely. It it could be due to a whole number of things, but they weren't actually able to pinpoint what it was. So essentially what we know is that, yes, when you undergo a prolonged diet, right, you generally will experience at some point or another just fluid retention, which is incredibly uncomfortable. It can really skew your physique and it can actually stress you out a little bit because you're like, I'm putting in all this work. What the hell is going on? Why is my body not cooperating? But they don't know why. But, you know, in saying that uh, anecdotally, what I've experienced, what, you know, other coaches have experienced too, is that for some reason, and again, we don't know the physiological reason behind this, but implementing more things like high carbohydrate days, you know, more diet breaks, that always seems to help just that extra fluid retention and that extra water just subside. And I don't know if you just go pee a hell of a lot more, you know, or you just like, you sweat a lot more or something, but it is quite common, you know, if you have a few high carbohydrate days mixed in with your low carbohydrate days that it really just seems to balance out. Like you've experienced that too, right? Yeah, in my prep, I did four low days and three high days. And I would always basically probably maintain my weight or even gain a little bit of weight on my low days and then basically lose a considerable amount on my high days. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I'm experiencing the exact same, like my five lower carbohydrate days during the week at 150 grams, right? But then my high carbohydrate days at 325 grams, I'm consuming like an extra 700 calories there, but I'll wake up the next morning and I'll be like a few hundred grams lighter. And it really does play mind tricks sometimes. It makes you think like, man, I'm just wasting my time on these crappy low macros and these crappy low calories. Like what's even the point of dieting? Clearly I don't need to be that aggressive because I can eat more food and lose more weight. But (laughs) obviously we know that's not necessarily true. Like when you are in the largest caloric deficit, that's clearly when you are going to be losing the highest percentage of body fat and uh, fat tissue. And yeah, it just seems that it's almost like compound interest. You almost just see all that hard work pay off after you get to enjoy a high carbohydrate day or two, or in Jack's case, three. And um, then you're like, damn, I'm looking good. Yeah, the um, it kind of is like magic the way you feel out on those high carb days and your mind completely changes as well. You get better sessions in. Yeah, libido might pop back for a little bit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> always a good time (laughs) carbs carbs are magical in that sense all right so yeah hopefully hopefully that answers your question i guess we just say especially in the tail end of a prep you know i wouldn't be a huge advocate for constant energy restriction you know like seven days per week on very low macros you know very low calories and just doing that week after week after week i'm certainly an advocate for taking little breaks you know and taking two or three high carbohydrate days per week consecutively 
every single week and just from the beginning uh probably not from the beginning i'd say at the beginning of a diet you know you have you're at a higher body fat percentage your body's not as susceptible to these random fluctuations and changes you know it's not as sensitive so i think that you can incorporate constant energy restriction at the beginning probably up to like maybe the first six weeks maybe yeah six weeks to ten weeks depending on the person but yeah, after, once you get leaner, I think that's when it's a lot more impor- important to start incorporating high carbohydrate days. For the exercise performance as well as everything else. Oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah, definitely coincide it with you know your higher training days as well. So. And do you think they should be back to back? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I think that, and definitely the literature suggests that as well. You know, like one acute high carbohydrate day, just over 24 hours, it's not really going to do much guys like sure it's going to raise blood glucose levels it might give you a little bit of extra glycogen but physiologically i don't think it's going to do very much i think you really should be doing it consecutively over two or three days to really reap the full benefits Mm. yeah all right so let's move on to another question so this one asks do you worry about any untested protein powders or supplements in your diet having potential contaminants if your clients or you were drug tested during a competition. How long do these things stay in your system? This is a really good question. It's fully loaded too. Mm. Yeah, very relevant for competitors. So it's not something I worry about and I don't think Tara worries about it really either. And for ourselves, I think for our clients, we, we do touch on it with them uh, because it is important, especially of course, if they compete naturally, they that not everyone gets tested, but if if the organization thinks that um, you look too good, then you're going to probably get tested. So this guy's just too good to be true. <laughs> and I think some some federations, such as AWMBS, they test all their their top placings. Yeah, W yeah WNBF AWMBS, they're really good for that. Yep. And okay, so to, yeah, to answer the first part, essentially, WADA is the world anti-doping agency and they basically restrict all the substances that are performance enhancing they are in charge of all of that and then there are a couple of third-party organizations including informed sport and hasta which basically what do they do exactly tira yeah so pretty much those are third-party groups that will test certain supplement products to make sure that they are free from performance enhancing drugs and usually the supplement company has to go through those third party organizations mm. in order to get you know their certification and you know get signed off so and i guess that's a form of marketing for them to indicate that hey natural athletes you can use our products and not be worried and we we have looked at the list of approved products and the reality is that there there really isn't that many mm-hmm. um I don't know if that's a combination of companies knowing they have banned products or banned substances or they just can't be bothered to get it done, which is I think is a bit slack. But. Yeah, there's probably well there's probably a huge financial thing too. It probably takes a lot of time, but yeah, I agree, you know, if a company is reputable and they want to support drug-free sports, then they should be going to these extra efforts, right? They should be financially investing in making sure that their products are safe, especially if a company wants to sponsor like 
team sport athletes, right? Like a rugby team or a hockey team or a swimming team or something, right? That is so important, especially when they are competing at like a world championship, you know, or an Olympic level. It's so important there. Mm. But some- and you'll, you'll see that in uh, companies that do sponsor team sports as well, such as VPA Australia and Musashi. So they're, and yeah, we're associated with VPA Australia and they are all, they're, a lot of their products are water approved, such as their pre-workout protein powder. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important. So I actually did a, um, an educational resource for Inspired Health Services back when Jack and I were at uni, you know, and we were doing our placement with them. But a few companies that come to mind that are informed sport and hasta approved right pretty much meaning that they've been tested and they are free from banned substances include things like vpa australia musashi true protein bulk nutrients there's a list of others and to be honest you can just go on to the informed sport or the hasta website and actually type into the search bar a product and it will tell you you know whether or not that product is tested and whether or not it has been approved by that company but to answer the rest of your question you know jack how long do these things stay in your system so i can comfortably say that this isn't our specialty area and i'm fairly certain it's associated with the half-life of the particular substance and how long it'll stay in your system if you want to call it that so it'll depend on the individual substance uh, so we can't really give a clear answer Um, not to mention we just don't really know yeah exactly it's going to be different for every single different drug if you know if this certain supplement was laced with the type of performance enhancing drug so yeah i would say just try to be safe you know if you know that you are going to be especially competing in a competition and you're going to be tested or you know even if you're not just to like protect yourself because you should be well informed of what you are putting into your body just proceed with caution all right i think the main things to watch out for are you know these little sample packets that you get from like you know some pretty dodgy supplement companies that just have like these random names like ultra burn you know or <laughs> what was that pre-workout i got once Do oh that? i don't know like they have some crazy names <laughs> it was like bull freak or something yeah bull freak jesus i i have no idea but anything that's like claiming that it's going to boost your testosterone by like 20 percent, and you're going to hit a squat one rm you should be like uh do i really want to take this <laughs> just to clarify i didn't use that pre-workout as well no yeah we maybe got a little bit scared <laughs> but i think the main thing to look out for is you know these products that just look like oh gosh i am um, i don't know if i should trust I, actually this. i remember i think it was eric talking about this and if or it might have been um on the stronger by science but they were saying something like if your pre-workout is substituting the name of a steroid such as like trend peak or something like that then you probably shouldn't be taking that yeah exactly like gym anabol or like <laughs> i don't know something right but i think the main thing is just look out for proprietary blends as well so a proprietary blend is when it will tell you what's in that product so it'll be like oh, this thing has caffeine and beta alanine and citrulline malate, you know, give you a list of a whole bunch of things, but it won't actually tell you the breakdown. It won't tell you like, all right, this has 200 milligrams of caffeine, you know, this has three, 
grams of creatine, whatever. It just says, yet this is what's in it, but we don't actually know the total amounts. I would totally look out for that. So try to avoid proprietary blends for sure. So yeah, just proceed with caution, be safe. You know, if you're walking into some sort of supplement store and you know, there's all these different, you know, containers on the wall, like probably don't go for one that does sound like it is a steroid. <laughs> and the reality is for a natural athlete that you can't take, there's not, the whole point of being natural and competing naturally is that you can't take anything to enhance your performance by a lot. So like there's pre-workout, which has caffeine in it, uh, creatine, protein powder, if you even want to call that a supplement. And then you do have your vitamin and mineral supplements if you are need to, to boost your levels of those if you're deficient. But sure, if you are deficient in those things, your performance will probably decrease. So it's important to ensure you're up to date with that. But the yeah, as I said, the whole point of staying natural is not getting a, a dramatic boost from those things. So don't you don't need to take the stuff like fat burners and um, the products that claim that it will enhance your performance because unless it's something like creatine or something we haven't discovered yet, then it's probably not going to. Yeah, dude, you just need a nice cup of coffee and just to hit the gym, all right? <laughs> that might be a slightly controversial statement. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know. There's probably there's probably a lot of people who might be shaking their heads. What? Why, why should they shake their heads? I'm shaking my head at you. You know, if you're spending more time in a supplement store buying fat burners and, you know, magical powders that sound like anabolic steroids, okay, I would argue that do get to the gym and don't make the excuse that, you know, you couldn't finish your workout or you didn't have time this week or something. Like, focus on what actually is going to guarantee you results. Yeah, I think it might be time to um, maybe do a, a large segment of an episode about um, the actual current literature on what products do and don't work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely a good rundown of, yeah, evidence-based supplements that would be awesome because mm. yeah i think i will i think we'll admit that we did a lot of stuff on supplements in our degree like we and we only graduated less than a year ago so i would consider ourselves fairly up to date but um yeah it might be, it'll be a good opportunity for us to ensure we are as well yeah absolutely all right so yeah guys that is in the pipeworks all right so we're gonna move on to this next question so this one says I feel like adequate and optimal fat intake for females should be revisited. So this is an interesting discussion point and there certainly is a difference between males and females and their fat intake. So just quickly for males, like even half a gram per kilo of body weight is, is enough to ensure that their requirements for fat intake is satisfied. And a lot of that does come down to hormones. Like for example, if you weigh 100 kilos and 50 grams of fat a day is enough. And that's actually a lot less, I'm sure that's a lot less than what people are expecting as well. But what about females? Yeah, so that's the thing, you know, people argue that males and females are different. And I hear a lot of coaches, you know, they kind of have this minimum cutoff for females of like 40 grams of fat, right? That's a cutoff. And I'm not necessarily sure where that number came from. Like, why is it 40 grams? I I would be interested. Why to, do people think BCAAs work? I don't know. But like, it just seems that it's like, it is that number. It's that 40 gram cutoff. And people are like, no, I don't want to go below that. You know, I will bring carbohydrates down. I'll even bring protein down before I bring fats for my female athlete below 40 grams. But 
My question is like, why? And I think it should certainly be relevant to total body weight. And I think it should be very individualized. I don't think that, you know, if you have a 45 kilogram athlete and you also have a 70 kilogram athlete, why should they both be on 40 grams of fat? Because, you know, they're completely different body sizes. So I think it should certainly be relative to your total body weight. And I'm not under the impression that, you know, like it has to be like one gram per kilogram, right? Or something like that. I'm, I'm not convinced that fat intake needs to be super high. I think that certainly- I guess the interesting part of this question though is, is, is um, the question asker is saying adequate slash optimal, not necessarily the, the lowest amount you can get, a, get away with. Yeah, so I think that when we're thinking about that, you know, pretty much with the dietary guidelines, they suggest that the total amount of calories that you're eating, 20 to 35% of those calories should come from fatty acids. So those are the recommendations. So you can figure out how many total calories you're eating per day, and you can try to aim for between 20 to 35% of your calories coming from fat. But at the same time, I don't think that those recommendations always apply to everyone. Those are just recommendations for, you know, the average individual trying to live a healthy lifestyle, you know, just general the healthy of eating. The, the whole purpose of the Australian Dietary Guidelines is chronic disease prevention. Yeah. It's not it's not just healthy eating. Okay, so chronic disease prevention, healthy eating. Thank you to my boyfriend, the dietitian. <laughs> but I guess when we're thinking about body composition, we're thinking about, you know, uh, exercise performance as well, I don't think it would be uncommon, especially if you're trying to change your body composition, if you are in a comp prep, you know, you might need to go below 20% of your total calories coming from fatty acids. One, if you want to prioritize exercise performance by dedicating more of your calories toward carbohydrates, and you also wanna put yourself in a decent energy deficit so you can actually lose weight and change your body composition and still keep protein moderately high too. So long story short, I think that it should still come down to how much you actually weigh. So I would say, I don't think females should be too different from males. I think around 0.5 grams per kilogram of body weight is fine. Obviously near the, like when you're further out from a competition or you're at the beginning of a dieting phase, it doesn't need to be that low. But as calories start coming down, you really need to balance it out of, okay, do I want to prioritize fats for this athlete or do I want to prioritize carbohydrates? And I would be a larger advocate of not taking fat super low, like maybe 35 grams or something, but preferentially keeping protein moderately high and giving more calories towards carbohydrates because that's going to equate to a higher volume of food, more glucose, you know, more energy for exercise performance. And you're also going to be able to fit in a lot more wholesome, nutritious foods into your diet. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, you know, all of these great foods that also provide plenty of fiber. So that's that. And I think um, the other important thing to reiterate though is that there's a difference between, because like a lot of our listeners do uh, uh, compete in physique sports, but a lot of them don't. So if you, there's a difference between if you are a competitor, then maybe you would like to go lower, but if you aren't a competitor, there's no reason you have to go lower. So you can, you can follow that 20 to 35% of your total energy intake. Oh, absolutely. It's and, always going to come down to the person. And we can't ignore the fact that there's always going to be a huge amount of diversity in terms of how you respond to 
uh, a certain amount of fat. So someone could be on, let's say like 0.5 um, or even one gram per kilo body weight of fat and experience um, signs that they are having a not enough fat to so like low libido or like very dry skin, those sorts of things as well. Like mm-hmm. they might get their bloods done and their hormones are quite low. Um, whereas, and like I say one gram per kilo of body weight when realistically that should be more than enough. But then you might have someone else who's on 0.3 grams per kilo body weight and they're perfectly fine. So, mm-hmm. um, But yeah. we also have to remember guys that fat isn't the driving force behind you know your health and your homeostasis, especially if you are a competitor or you're going through a prolonged diet, you're losing a significant amount of weight just being in a chronic energy deficit, you know, that's usually the cause of what, why your hormones are changing. It's not your total of fat intake. And they've even done studies, you know, to show that males who are in a larger energy deficit, but they're consuming a higher proportion of fatty acids, it really doesn't have that much of a difference on their total testosterone levels because they're still energy deprived. So we just have to keep these things in mind. And also, final point I want to touch on... The quality on, of fatty acids. The quality of your fats. That's right. You read my mind, my man. But yeah, okay, like let's say that you were having... There was a, a female, she was having 50 grams of fat per day, and then there was another female, right? And she was only having 35 grams of fat per day. I would argue that the quality of the fatty acids that you're filling your diet with actually potentially might supersede the total amount of fat that you are 50 consuming. grams just from chicken skin yeah well if you, yeah 50 grams from chicken skin and peanut butter all right compared well, to peanut s- butter is not bad it's uh, monounsaturated not, fat. none of these fats are bad we don't talk okay. about good and bad <laughs> fats unless they're trans fats <laughs> uh no but what i'm trying to say is that you need to be filling your diet with nutritious fatty acids especially if your fat intake is on the lower end so make sure that you are getting those essential fatty acids so make sure that you are eating oily fish at least twice per week you know or you're getting chia seeds and walnuts and flax meal in there right you're getting in a few egg yolks right you're you're eating nuts you're having olive oil you're you're just filling your diet with more nutritious sources of fats and ensuring that you're getting adequate variety of fatty acids and nutrients into your diet. And as long as especially you're getting in those essential fatty acids, I think that's actually more important. Even if your total fat intake is lower compared to someone who's eating 50 grams per day. But yeah, like Jack said, that's coming from chicken skin and peanut butter. <laughs> I just said chicken skin. There's that nothing wrong with fun- peanut butter. There's a funky diet. <laughs> that is- <laughs> A chicken skin burrito. Oh, gee, yuck, man. I'd so much rather have cheese. Chicken skin burrito. (laughs) What kind of Mexican are you? (laughs) I'm not a Mexican, Tierra. All right, guys. So that's pretty much going to be all of the questions for today. But, you know, we always finish on one final question for the day, and that is one thing that we learned. So what did you learn this week, Tierra? Okay, so what I learned is actually from the Flex Success podcast again when they interviewed Jackson Pios and uh, Lizzie, who is one of the coaches over at Flex Success, you know, and uh, she's also like the co-founder 
of their business. But essentially, she was actually talking about this website called labdoor.com, which is super interesting. And it actually ties back into one of the previous topics in the podcast talking about, you know, safe and effective supplements. So Labdoor, essentially what they do is they buy different supplements from retail stores. They take them to their chemistry labs and they actually test them not only for banned substances, but they actually just test, you know, if that product actually has the exact amount of ingredients that it claims to have, you know, and whether or not essentially it is a safe and effective product. So I thought that was pretty cool. So if you guys, you know, want to check out labdoor.com, you can just type in a supplement into their search bar and uh, you can pretty much see if it's safe and effective. And, you know, they do tests on them and they do reviews on them. And I think that was just really, really interesting. So. Yeah, if you guys have uh, gone to your recent supplement store and bought some sort of pre-workout, go onto Labdoor and type in whatever anabolic sounding name, you know, your pre-workout is and uh, test if it's truly safe, you know? So. I like the pun there, test. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> very unintentional. Yes, I, uh, I own that one. <laughs> mm, I don't get that. What? Testosterone. Oh, right. What the heck? <laughs> what did you learn, dude? <laughs> So I learned, I actually found a, a new podcast channel courtesy of Tierra. It's called the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. And yeah, they, he actually gets on a lot of great guests. He hasn't gotten on Tierra yet though, which is... Dude, what's he been doing, <laughs> man? <laughs> and yeah, so he had Mike on. He has had Mike as a tail on for quite a few episodes. And this one was about um, the use of anabolics, which... I found quite interesting. I'm not going to go in any more depth if you're interested in that. I'm I'm not that interested in it. Like I would never Oh, we're interested. <laughs> Come on, we're who isn't interested in the science and the physiology behind yeah, steroids? I, I meant I'm not interested in using those oh, products, okay. but I am interested in uh, like it's kind of like a bit of a not a I guess it is a mystery to us because we don't mm. know that much about it. Yeah, definitely willing to learn, but hashtag natty for life. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And <laughs> Yeah, he goes into a lot of depth about why people are just idiots in terms of their usage and the the smarter way to to do things if you want to maybe try something for the first time. And we definitely don't condone the use of them at all. It's it's really up to you. Um, But it is very so important just to be aware of what you're getting yourself into because there's a big difference between like, I don't know, popping something, popping an oral that it's not going to do much versus jabbing a needle into you. So yeah, like once you make that decision, it is a lifelong decision. Like Mm. there are consequences if you decide to go down that route and whether or not you do, you know, no judgment whatsoever, but just be safe about it, you know, and, uh, really, really think and make sure that you certainly are, you know, working alongside different health practitioners and especially you have a doctor, you know, who is well in tuned with the use of performance enhancing drugs. Mm. And that episode was called The Guide to Responsible Steroid Use Feet and Mike Isratel. And it was on the 22nd of April, 2019. And the podcast host is called the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. So yeah, that wraps up today's episode, the 63rd episode from the Bodybuilding Dietitians. 
If you did enjoy this one, please remember to take a screenshot on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're listening and repost it onto your Instagram stories. Tag myself, tag Tierra, and tag Bodybuilding Dietitians. And we'll see you next time. See you later, guys.